this morning, I'm, I'm really grateful. My, um, October is a busy month for my family. Um, my, my youngest child, her birthday is on, on the 5th, and she turned three. And my son, his birthday is five days later. He turned five. And in, in my family, we, we don't throw big birthday parties um, except for four birthdays um, for their fifth birthday and their 10th birthday. 13 and 16. So um, we just started that for, with our first child because we really didn't feel like going through the effort or cost of throwing a baby, a birthday party they would never remember. <laughs> um, and uh, we've, our kids are cool with that generally, but when number five comes around, they are stoked. They are really excited. So my son had a Wild Kratz birthday party at our house, and um, we had a family all of my family come up from Atlanta, um, and we had my wife's grandparents and her, her mom come down, and I was, um, I was really, I'm really grateful for the gift of having family that we love and um, enjoy being around. I know that's not the case for a lot of people, um, but we actually, we really love our family, and um, it's exciting for us to be able to be together like that, and also we could never have pulled this off without them. Sorry, my wife could never pull this off without them. I, I did whatever I was told. I was, nothing would have happened if it was left up to me. Um, but also, as, uh, as my son was, um, as we were singing happy birthday to him on, on Thursday, um, I just, I got emotional because I was... This doesn't happen on every birthday, but for some reason, on this one, I was just reminded um, how different this feeling was compared to when he was born five years ago, and I, I thought he was going to die. Um, and I, it's easy to take for granted the gift of life, and I'm just so grateful. I mean, I'm grateful for all my kids, um, truly, but this one I thought was going to die when he was born, so I was... Um, just reminded of the mercy and the, the abundant generosity of God in simple and ordinary things. And uh, I'm a very negative person. It's easy to see what's not going right. But in that moment, it was, it was very convicting and um, rewarding to, to be reminded of that. Um, has nothing to do with what I'm preaching on. Um, this, this morning, we're... We are moving on in our examination of the Apostles' Creed. This is the Apostles' Creed is uh, the oldest creed that's universally accepted in the church. Um, we, we are saying it together every week during this series. We've um, put out the baptismal font at the front of the, the, the building. These are things that define us as a people together. Uh, even if they're things that you forget about or we forget about. We want to pay attention to them together. Um, so th- this week, the line in the creed that we're looking, in, uh, looking at is uh, in the traditional one that we use. It's, he says he descended into hell. Um, there's also versions that say he descended, in, descended to the dead. Uh, and this is probably one of the weirder ones. Um, this is the one, one of the ones that people... Uh, if they're going to ask me anything about the creed, which, to be clear, is a very small percentage of humans ever ask me any questions about a creed, um, they're probably going to zero in on this line and say, what is this all about? 
So uh, I'm going to read two passages. Uh, the first is Psalm 16. And then we're going to read from the book of Acts where there's citation of Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gave me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then I'll read from Acts 22. I'm 222. Acts 2, and Acts 2 is the, the first Christian sermon preached by Peter in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. We're jumping kind of in the middle of it, and we're not going to read the whole thing. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that it would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witness. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured out that out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for being a part of this people, this individual people, Valley Hope, and this people, this company of Christians, the church of all ages, the people of God. We thank you that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And Father, 
I pray that we would be stirred this morning to hear your word. We would see the great hope that you have secured for us. And we would, as that great cloud, run the race with endurance, with abandon and with joy. Use this word to provoke that in us, Lord Jesus, to the praise of your name. Amen. This line in the creed, he descended into hell, is, uh, is, is really a weird one. It's not even, it wasn't even originally in the creed. The earliest versions of the creed didn't have this line. The first version of the creed with this line didn't come until the end of the 4th century, beginning of the 5th century. It's officially confirmed in the end of the 8th century. So it's quite a bit older than the rest of the creed. Um, and it's something that the church was already teaching. It just wasn't in the creed yet. And we get to it, uh, and there's even some fuzziness about, about the language of it all, because we are trying to move between ideas written in Latin and put them in English, and there's confusion in the Latin whether the word they're using means dead or whether it means hell. So that itself is confusing. What's also confusing is we are bringing ideas today to the conversation that didn't exist in the Old Testament, certainly, and are only developing in the New Testament, and are even now different than the church of the 4th, 5th, 6th century, because we're on the other side of a lot of things that have happened. So that is another layer of confusion. And I start with the biblical text. I start with the Old Testament moving forward. And this idea of what happened when Jesus died is really important. There's, it's important that he, he died on the cross on a Friday and he's resurrected on a Sunday. And there's a Saturday when he's just dead, when he's in the grave. That is not incidental if his death, his burial, his descent is not important, then he could have just breathed his last on the cross and then like popped off the cross, right? That could have happened, but it didn't. He was crucified, buried, and descended to the dead. Because something is going on in this thing that the creed is describing, that he descended into the dead. Something in the work of redemption is crucial about this Holy Saturday. What is going on there? Now, most of you, all of you know, I, I teach a survey of the Old Testament, survey of the New Testament at Montreal College, and people come into my class from all over the map, literally never open a Bible to have spent their whole life in Sunday school. And, and whether you've spent a lot of time in the church or, or no time at all, a lot of people come to the Bible with the assumption that the main thing that the Bible wants to tell you is how do you go to heaven when you die? That is what they just implicitly understand the Bible to be about. And I have to work through that throughout the entirety of a school year to help again and again understand the Bible is not primarily about me or you or about my life 
or what happens when I die, the primary, primary function of Scripture is to reveal things about God. It, the story is about God. Always start with God. And then when you, when you work through that presupposition, if you look through the Old Testament, you realize that Israel has very few ideas about what happens when you die. The Old Testament has almost no information. We read in Psalm 16 this language of Sheol, that my soul would go down to Sheol, which then in the New Testament that we read in in Acts 2, it's translated as Hades because they're working off of a Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's why the word Sheol gets translated into Hades. This word is like the only thing that we have to describe what Israel thinks about what happens when you die. And Sheol is this place for everyone of total darkness and mystery. The assumption is when you die, you go down into the depths. You are lifeless. You flit about the world and the underworld without any real experience of true life or even the presence of God. It is barely remarked upon. There is no assumption that good people go up and bad people go down. It's just when you die, it's over. And so when, when the Psalms talk about the idea of going down into Sheol, then this is not the only Psalm that does it. Others will talk about how when I go down into the tomb, I, there I expect to be far away from the presence of God and the shock of somehow even finding God there. It is this total mystery as to what happens when you die. Most of the Old Testament is instead about what is God doing with Israel and how is he going to prove himself faithful and the hope is that God will fulfill the promises to Israel, to Abraham, and indeed his promises to Adam and Eve. And that everything will somehow be changed. And if I die before it happens, God have mercy on me. And Jesus actually alludes to this mystery of what happens when you die. He tells these stories. He tells parables. And one of the parables that he tells is the parable of Lazarus, the poor man. He, Lazarus the poor man, not his friend that he raises from the dead, just same name. Lazarus dies, and he goes to this place, and this rich man goes to a place, and they're somehow like neighbors. The, the rich man is bad, and he's in Sheol, he's in Hades, he's in this dark, bad place, but somehow paradise, this other place that's not as bad, it's better, the the rich guy wants to go there, but they're, they're adjacent to one another. They can see one another across the divide so that even the good people are in a place that's next door to the bad people. And there's no real description beyond that except that Lazarus is comforted in some way and the rich man is not. And the New Testament, when we come to the New Testament, you think our assumption is then, okay, Jesus is going to sort all this out and now we're going to really know what's, what's hell like, what's heaven like. And those are new categories. The idea of, of something worse than Sheol and something better than Sheol, those are new categories. And guess what? The New Testament preachers, 
You can hear it in Acts 2 if you finish the sermon. At the end of Peter's sermon in Acts 2, guess what he doesn't say? If you want to go to heaven today is the day to respond to Jesus. If you were to die tonight, my friend, where would he doesn't do that. What he does is he just announces the hope and fulfillment of Israel has come in Jesus Christ. He's the crucified and risen Lord. Respond to him. And what's happened over time is we have gotten obsessed with this question and we have decided that the ultimate thing that God can do for you is that when you die, you go to the right place. Now, certainly that's important, and we are going to get there this morning. But it is important to pay attention to the overarching narrative of Scripture. The pressing question is, who is God? What is He like? What is He doing in the world to redeem it? That is the central organizing question of all of Scripture. It's what motivates our reading and our submission to it. And here is the church saying this thing, that he descended into hell. And the church has, we've left on this line. There's all kinds of actually beautiful iconography and art that goes around mythology that builds up around this this idea of Jesus' descent after he dies. The question is, did he, did he go somewhere? Martin Luther, the great reformer, he said Jesus physically descended into hell. When he was buried, he like got sucked down through the earth into wherever the physical place that hell was. Is that what happened? More importantly, what is Jesus doing on Holy Saturday? If the question is about not what is Scripture saying about me, but instead, what is Scripture saying about God? And our question needs to be, what is Jesus doing on Holy Saturday when He is buried in the tomb? What is going on? And this psalm and what Peter says is actually very helpful for us. Because whatever, whatever the grave is, whatever Sheol is, whatever death is, there is darkness that has to be confronted there. And whatever, whatever is happening, but if we use the language of, of hell, if Jesus descended into hell, what is happening there? What is going on with Jesus there? Calvin, who I love looks at the cross and he says when Jesus is suffering on the cross when Jesus is bodily suffering he is also experientially emotionally suffering the torment of hell itself that he is actually feeling abandonment by God not that God actually abandons him but that Jesus takes on the experience of wrath and abandonment and he personally suffers what it might mean to experience the judgment and suffering of hell. God never changes how he feels about Jesus, Calvin is quick to point out. But, he says, Jesus takes on 
our experience if we might also enter in the abandonment and judgment of God as Jesus did on the cross. Calvin says when Jesus is on the cross and like we looked at last week, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is saying it honestly. He's experiencing the forsakenness of God. But the church has also insisted that something is going on when he goes into the grave. Jesus actually dies. This is important to meditate on. We we experience Jesus spiritually, invisibly. So I think in our minds, we often just think of Jesus as mostly spiritual. But it's important to meditate on the fact that Jesus is embodied and is as fully human as you and I. And so when he dies, he doesn't just experience this sort of transformation. And then he switches to become spiritual Jesus. And then that would be no problem. But because Jesus has taken on everything that we are, he actually descends into the grave the same way that every other Israelite has ever descended into the grave. That all the psalm writers, all the wanderers, all the people who have come to their deathbed in fear and in mystery, Jesus dies the same way that they do. He experiences the gasping out of his final breath, the cessation of his heartbeat. He experiences death. And he descends as every other Israelite has also descended. When Jesus speaks to the thief on the cross, he tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. We often think this way, up there, paradise. But Jesus in his parables has told us where paradise is. It's down in the depths, adjacent next door to Hades, to Sheol. So if he's descending to paradise like this, what is he doing? And the answer that Peter gives, the answer that the psalm gives, is that he is crushing every enemy that can be arrayed against us. When he is in the depths, he is not staying in the depths of death of hell. But he is instead getting death in a stranglehold and wrestling it down into death itself. When Jesus sees the thief on the cross, again in paradise, everything, the geography of it all, changes. So that suddenly hell and heaven are pushed apart from each other. So that suddenly paradise is not anymore next door neighbors to whatever Sheol was, but instead comes with the relief that Paul describes in Corinthians, that if you're absent from God, if you're absent from the body, you're present with God. And the the language of Christian hope, of what happens to dead people, changes forever. 
So that where before Israelites were saying, you go down into darkness and shadowy mystery to Christians having church services in catacombs. Places where dead bodies are stacked upon each other. They would do things, Husto Gonzalez, a church history historian says, they would bring their dead to the middle of the church service so that they could worship and see that even here God has triumphed. The, the body of their loved one is not to them a sign of the victory of death, but is instead a testimony to that God has triumphed over wherever this person is, and now they are with God. The grave then becomes for us, for Christians, not a place of inescapable shadowy mystery and fear, but instead the place where Jesus has gone before us. Now now the people of God don't look at the place where people are buried and say, I don't know what's going on there. That is shadowy and mysterious, but instead says, that is the portal to the greatness and glory of God. That that is a place that even there Jesus has gone. And so when our toes curl around the edges of our graveside, we are not staring into the nothingness, the bleakness, the mystery of death. We are instead staring into another place that Jesus has demonstrated his superiority. That is what enables Christians in the early church to gather around the dead and laugh in the face of death. The very thing that terrified the people of God before now is stripped of all of its fear. So that as Paul says, we of course weep, but we don't weep as people who have no hope. We weep as people who are missing the person who is gone, but we know that person is safe and secure in the arms of a Savior who has wrapped death in his arms and strangled it down to the grave himself. Death for the Christian, when Jesus has wrestled it down into the darkness, is stripped of its power. And though I cannot tell you what does it look like when you die, what, is, what do you experience, what does it taste like, what does it feel like, I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know, it's the place that Jesus has been. It is the place that he has been through. He is the great Moses of his people who will carry you through the waters of death and you will not be touched on either side. That you'll somehow miraculously walk through on dry ground where before we only saw shadowy, watery death. Not only does he defeat the powers of the grave of death itself and strip it of its mysterious power, but he stares into the teeth of the powers of hell. Jesus, when he descends into the darkness, when he descends to the dead, when he descends to hell, he strips the gatekeepers of hell of all their power. That the devil and his minions are not people that we paint on walls as being mysteriously powerful, somehow equal to God, and we hope that God tips one way or the other, that he can somehow win this divine arm wrestling match between two equals. Instead, we look at the powers of hell and of the devil as an already subjugated, already defeated, stripped of their power, dim reflection, a mockery of what God is. So that even today when we see the powers of darkness and of hell, which we don't deny, 
We don't deny the blackness of evil, the depths of darkness that we've seen rolling through the streets. We don't deny that evil, that hell, that Satan is real. How can you look at the world and not see it all over the place? We don't deny that evil doesn't have teeth. But what we affirm is that God is absolutely superior. That God has taken the powers of darkness and evil and death and suffering and broken its back. Which is the great promise of God. In Genesis 3, when the whole story collapses in on itself and at the fall, when Adam and Eve have eaten and chosen themselves as ruling and reigning monarchs in the garden and the curse is falling on them and death is raining down and everything is wrecked and ruined by the fall, the first person that God speaks to in His judgment is not Adam or Eve. It is the serpent. And to the serpent, He says, one day one of hers will come out and crush your head even if you bruise his heel. And when Jesus descends to the grave, it is the great heel strike of God on the head of the serpent. The powers of hell and of darkness are crushed when Jesus, our great conqueror, goes lower and lower that we might be pulled higher and higher. The grave, naturally in our flesh, we are tempted to be afraid. But the great repeated hope of the New Testament people of God is the thing that we have started by affirming. It is Jesus who is the fulfillment of Israel's hope. The place where I go when I die is only a secondary footnote, a secondary testimony to a greater reality. Who is Jesus? What the great story of Scripture is inviting us to see is not our own security in and of ourselves. The great testimony of Scripture is inviting us to look at Jesus. Look at Him. Look at Him. He is the one who triumphs over all your fears. Every power that is arrayed against you, physical death and sorrow and suffering, evil arrayed against you, there is not one enemy that he has not vanquished. And he is our great hope. And he is our great salvation. I want to read to you this From Ben Myers. The Son of God has taken our nature to Himself. He allows our fallen nature to drag Him down. He descends to the very abyss of the human condition. He traces our plight right back to the root and takes hold of us there. He embraces our humanity at the point of its total collapse into non-being. Because he shares our nature, he is able to fall with us into death. Because he is the Son of God, he is able to fill death with his presence so that the grave becomes a source of life. Today, Jesus is our great hope. And if you have been plagued by fear of evil 
or fear of death. Our confession today as a church is that he has descended into the dead. And he is there our conqueror, our hero, our victor. And you do not need to be tormented by fear anymore. We are not a people who are, who are absent from suffering. We are not a people who say we will not taste death or sorrow or suffering. We are a people who can say we don't have to be afraid anymore. And then when Jesus told his people, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. He adds and includes in that list of places, even the grave itself. Wherever you are, Whoever is oppressing you from outside or in, know that Jesus is riding in to be your hero this morning. You do not have to be good enough, strong enough, clever enough to figure out how to feel better about yourself. What you have to do is let him be the hero. You have to set aside Adam and Eve's fruit and decide that he is the better king. He is the better hero. And he will be your victor. This morning, do not pass up the opportunity to confess that. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, it is our repeated, ongoing confession that our soul needs all the time. He is our hero. He is our king. He is our great hope, and in him all our hopes are secure. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, it is our joy to look to Jesus. It is our joy to confess that there is no place that we could run and not find you there victorious. You are the guarantee of our hope. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, our heart leaps to that word of good news. That now you have made the way for us, your people, to take heart and be comforted as you have made a place for us forever at your side, that now, right now, we can confess you will never leave us or forsake us, that we can look to our grave and say, even there, you will never leave us or forsake us, that we can imagine on the other side of the grave and say, you will never leave us or forsake us, and we can look to the whole of human history and say, you will never leave us or forsake us. We confess, God, that we are often tempted to make the story about us. And we become afraid 
because we do not trust ourselves. Father, I pray this morning that you would put yourself on display, that you would magnify yourself and draw our hearts to you. Lock all of our hopes into your hands, God. Father, I pray for those who have been tormented by the powers of sin and death, who have been pursued and tormented by spiritual powers that would oppose you, by the inescapable destiny of every person who has been terrified by fear, racked by sin. Father, I pray that you would speak a word of freedom to them. And Father, I pray that for all of us here who have heard that word many times before, I pray that you'd make us to believe. That our hearts would leap to the good news again. That we would look to you and trust. Father, I thank you that all our hopes hinge on you. If they hinge on me and even a little bit, we would be in trouble But you are a sure thing. I thank you that there is nowhere we can go that you have not been. No enemy that we see that you have not triumphed over. May we grow in that confidence to the day that we see you face to face. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your love. Amen.